0: Ecclesiastes eight, we are going to attempt to tackle the entire chapter this morning. The title of my sermon is Careful Submission. The key words for our worshipers and training are King, power and submission. Now, by now, if you've been with us as we've walked through the book of Ecclesiastes, you have seen consistent themes that continue to come up. As it began, it seemed like it was a constant refrain of Solomon to continue to talk about the meaninglessness of life apart from God. We saw that again and again. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. It was the continuous refrain of Solomon And then we saw, as he sought to understand life under the sun, he pointed us to the reality of the providence of God, the sovereignty of God shown in the providential occurrences in life. That there are seasons and times and all of them are sent by God and ordained by God. We saw a few weeks ago that Solomon pressed in on the futility of self-righteousness. That as we seek to be a self-righteous people, that we see in the end that we are not righteous at all. We must depend upon the righteousness of another. And we've seen several times as Solomon has sought to weigh out the scales of fairness. He sees bad things happening to good people. He sees good things happening to bad people. And he wonders about this. He questions this. He seeks to find wisdom in the midst of this reality. And so this is where he will be this morning, taking many of these themes and tying them all together and focusing on this reality, the scales of fairness. What seems right often turns out very wrong, and what seems very wrong so often seems to be that which the world looks at as right. Remember, a major part of Solomon's quest all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes for true meaning is a consideration of the apparent inequities in life. The way that seems right does not come to pass, but evil is present in the midst of righteousness. And we see this time and again as he brings these things out. So Solomon's teaching must uh, evaluate the circumstances properly. We have to look at these things and look at them rightly. We have to understand them that affliction may not always be bad. Likewise, prosperity may not always be good. And likewise, not just circumstances, but we also must evaluate others properly. Righteous people may not always be all that righteous. And those with power don't always use it appropriately, but often for their own gain. Those appointed to uphold justice are often very unjust. And sometimes the righteous suffer and the evil prosper. It is a twisted, confusing way of life, but it is reality. And Solomon keeps bringing us back to that point. So it is important that we recognize from the beginning of looking through this that he has constantly drawn our attention back to this one main theme. All that happens in this world is under the sovereign hand of God. Remember in chapter 7 and verse 13 he says, Who can make straight what he, what God has made straight? Crooked. So now Solomon turns his attention to this reality, specifically in light of a government. A righteous government could alleviate some of the crooked and apparent inequities in our midst. Now obviously alleviating and removing are not the same thing. We know that the evil that exists here and now will not disappear. We live in a post-Genesis chapter 2 world. All is not perfect. All is not well. But is it possible that the presence and the effects of evil could be at least lessened to some extent? Solomon says yes, but it is, it is very rare. So Solomon's giving us practical guidance for dealing with earthly governments, good or evil, even in the matters of life and death. Now, as we look to chapter 8, we will see that verse 1 is a transitional sort of verse from chapter 7. Remember, in chapter 7, we got various words of wisdom from Solomon. And now we're transitioning into chapter 8 and what Solomon teaches us about things that are outside of our control. Solomon begins this chapter with some rhetorical questions and then he praises the gift of wisdom. So let's look at verse 1 of chapter 8. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. So what is the answer to Solomon's questions? Is there one who truly is wise? Does anyone have the ability to explain something that is difficult to interpret? He tells us in the second part of this verse that true wisdom transforms one's countenance. But wisdom is rare. He's made that point several times through Ecclesiastes. And none can compare to the one who is truly wise. If wisdom is as hard to come by, as Solomon pointed out in chapter 7, remember he said there is only one in a thousand. of one percent. It is also not easy to find an interpreter of things, one who can weigh the evidence, consider the facts, and draw reasonable conclusions. Let me give you an example. Have you ever sought to try to explain divine providence in relationship to man's responsibility? Have you ever tried to explain God's sovereignty over evil and suffering in the world? If suffering is a sign of God's judgment and a call to repentance, or is it an opportunity for God's grace and thus a test of our faith? Have you ever sought to think through these things and perhaps more difficult to explain them to others? It's very difficult. It is rare that such wisdom and discernment and interpretation would be found, is what Solomon is pointing to. But when it is, we know it. We see it. And those who live without God in the world often show the proud demeanor in their stern expression. It comes from a heart hardened by sin. And Solomon calls it here a hardness of face. But the wisdom of the gospel turns our frown of sin into a smile of grace. It's not just a happy face. It's not the yellow Walmart sign. But it's a countenance that shines about the believer. Psalm 34.5 says, Those who look to Him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This is more than metaphor. True godly wisdom in our lives changes everything. It brings with it a joy that compares to no other. Because to know and to have true wisdom is to know and to delight in God himself. So everything changes, including our appearance. An example of this comes from a 2008 essay by a prominent atheist about a strange phenomenon he had observed while doing some work in Africa. The journalist Matthew Parris wrote this in a piece for the Times. It was entitled, remember, he's a, a staunch atheist The piece was entitled, Why Africa Needs God. He admitted that Christianity made a tangible difference in the lives of people he knew in his boyhood home of Malawi and other countries across Africa. And not only did he admire the good work of the Christians that they were doing to care for the poor and the sick, but he also liked the way uh, that he saw them, what he saw about them. A quote from his piece, he wrote, The Christians were different. That's a good report. (laughs) Their faith appeared to have liberated and relaxed them. There was a liveliness, a curiosity, an engagement with the world. And whenever we entered a territory worked by missionaries, we had to acknowledge that something changed in their faces, in the faces of the people we passed and spoke to. There's something in their eyes. You see, biblical wisdom brings personal transformation. It makes a difference in our witness and showing people the joy of knowing Christ. And it makes a difference in our relationships as well. So as we pray for God to grow us as Christians, we should be asking God for greater wisdom, to bring growing joy in our lives, in our witness for Christ. And as His face shines upon us, that our faces will shine with the wisdom of His radiant grace. So then Solomon moves to consider what this true wisdom looks like before the king If this is true of the believer, what does this look like in light of submission to a king before the authority of the government? What is the responsibility of one who is wise in God before the God-appointed authorities? seems timely that in light of a coming election season that we would look to the Scriptures to see what God says about our submission to authority. Look at verse 2. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? How is a godly, wise person to deal with those in authority? Now, it's important that we remember the context here. He's talking about the king in the royal court. Whatever the king wants, the king gets. In the earthly sense, the king of a nation had absolute authority. But I think Solomon's wisdom here can easily be applied to all forms of government or, more generally, to any situation in which we are responsible to submit to an authority. He points to two specific applications here. First is that rulers and authorities are to be obeyed. Verse 2 is best rendered, keep the king's command because of your oath to God. In other words, submission to the king in Israel was made by a solemn oath before God. And this is the consistent teaching in Scripture. 1 Peter 2.17 Fear God and honor the king. Romans 13, verses 1 and 5. The authorities that exist are appointed by God. Because of this, you must be subject to them, not only because of wrath, but because of your conscience sake. Now remember, all of these examples, they're commanding this in the midst of extreme persecution of the Christians by the government. And the Bible says, submit to the authorities. Now notice the practical reason here. It's fear of punishment. This is the first thing that he mentions. This is often what immediately comes to mind, right? remember just the other day, I was disciplining a child in the school. And I said, I asked him, why why should we not be disobedient? What's wrong with being disrespectful? Why shouldn't we show disrespect to our teachers, to other adults? And he looked right at me and said, so I don't get in trouble? (laughs) Well, perhaps, no one wants to get in trouble, but is that why we shouldn't disrespect and dishonor others? But the honesty of a child brings out the heart of all of us. No one ever wants to suffer the punishment of the law. And so we simply look to this as a deterrent rather than an actual submission. Solomon is instructing respect and circumspection dealing with the authorities. Don't hurry away from the king's presence or stand up for a bad cause. Understand the king's power and don't unnecessarily provoke him to displeasure. I think it's safe to say here there's a warning to be careful who we submit to. Because once we do, we are part of it, and it could be something that leads us astray. Who will you allow to have authority and influence in your life? This has tremendous ramifications because there is a biblical call for us to submit to authority. Obviously, we can't always decide who that will be. But when we can, he's telling us, be wise. So, for example, if I couldn't trust my fellow elders, I couldn't be here. Why? Because I'm under their authority. I have to trust them. I have to know that we have the same desire in terms of mission. They can see my blind spots. I can see theirs. And I know in the midst of all that they love me. And they desire to see good come from me and in the ministry of the church. So we must be very careful who we submit to. We might find ourselves in a situation we never hoped for. And so first he tells us we must submit to the authorities appointed over us. Secondly, he gives reason for it that we submit to authority because it is an obedience to God. So he's pointing to the greater reality here. Now, this isn't the idea of my government, right or wrong, but rather submission where there is not sin. And in submitting to authorities appointed over us on the earth, it's grooming our hearts for submission to the authority of God. So when the government does call us to sin, we say, no way. It's not happening. And we see examples of that in the Scriptures. God's will is first. It is our most important consideration. And that might mean at times that we disobey authority. Remember in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were brought before the authorities and they were told, do not preach In the name of Jesus. And in verse 19 of Acts chapter 4, Peter said, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must decide. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So you see, there are times for civil disobedience to authority because of submission and obedience to God. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Bow down to the golden statue of Nebuchadnezzar. What did they say? Throw us in the fire. We will not bow to any but the Lord God. And he will put us, if you put us in the fire, He will rescue us. But even if He doesn't, we obey God, not man. There are times for civil disobedience. But there are those things that are required of us to be rendered to Caesar. Give him his tax. Submit to his authority so long as you are not called to sin against God. And so submission to the civil government is a submission to God. Until the moment we must say we obey God rather than men, we are called by God to submit to that authority that he has put in place. All authority that has been put in place. Deuteron- uh, excuse me, Daniel chapter 2 and verse 21 says, He, God, removes kings and sets up kings. So our president, yeah, he was voted for. God put him there. Submit to the authority. Look at verse 5. Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. So as you address the authorities, as you question authority, as you seek to challenge authority when it seems right and biblical, he's saying know the right time, know the right and just way to do so. It could go very badly for you if it is approached wrongly. Now, again, this is in the context of a monarchy and addressing a king. It's important, though, as we think of the principle here in this context of all the scriptures and how this applies to us sitting right here this morning, we are never called by God to blindly conform to the laws of men that they may decide to impose. We are called to an active, analytical, and ethical, biblical response to any situation Even in the face of potentially threatening consequences, we must obey God. There's an exhortation from Solomon here that we are wise in our steps. We're calculated. We are intentional. And this goes not only for our grievances before the king, but in all of life. The Bible is constantly pointing to this reality that we need to know who we are in Christ and we must know what Christ has asked of us in our lives before we get started down a specific path. Remember last week we looked at how foolish it is that we would not seek the wisdom of others, that we would not seek to know the way of things according to reality and how foolish it is that we would ever want to learn things in life the hard way. The hard way of learning when wisdom is right in front of you is foolishness. So we have to ask ourselves, who am I as a Christian in Christ? What has Christ accomplished for me and in me that when I'm pers- what I'm pursuing is important and worthwhile? And as we do that, we can take the seldom-traveled path of gospel obedience, Gospel liberty and gospel joy. And all of these are inseparably related. If I understand who I am in Christ, and I understand what Christ has accomplished for me, I will walk in obedience and experience liberty. I will experience joy. And so when this is my life, this is how I'm defined, I know the right direction, I know the right time, I know the right thing to do. And as I walk with Christian community, as I seek counsel, as I pray with others, as I submit to the things of God, I can do those things freely. I can do them without guilt and no matter how difficult they are, no matter how much sorrow they may bring, I can do them with joy because right and wrong and the direction of life were set because I knew who I was, and what Christ has accomplished before the alarm clock went off this morning. And so I am intentional about knowing Christ and knowing me and how I've been transformed by Christ. And in doing this, we know how to flee from evil. We know the right time to confront the sin of authority. Look in verse 7. For he does not know What is to be? For who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. Okay, so submit to authorities. Be careful who you put yourself under the authority of. But when you are under their authority, obey them, and in so doing, you are obeying God, the ultimate authority. Know who you are in Christ. Know what Christ has accomplished on your behalf. And this is the wise way to move forward through anything in life. This is the wise way to walk. But the reality is, none of us, not one of us, knows the future And so our tendency is to want to rush into things and our impatience tends to make a huge mess. Have you ever said something in a fit of anger because you knew it was going to really sting whoever you were saying it to? Have you ever snapped at an authority in your life? Knowing full well that you were being completely disobedient? But you were impatient and unwilling to wait to see what everything was shaping up to be. So you just rushed in and tried to take the situation into your own hands. I've done that. I think in a lot of ways that's probably one reason why four years was long enough for me in the army. (laughs) I remember being deployed once in a combat situation and my superiors were making a, what I thought to be a terrible decision. And when I was told about it, it was obvious that I wasn't happy. Uh, one of my officers told me I wasn't respecting him properly. And so I thought it was necessary to tell him that that was because I didn't respect him, only his rank, and that he was making the wrong decision. So when I'm a sergeant and he's a major, that doesn't really go over all that well. And that was a really, really, really stupid thing for me to say. Not because I got in trouble, but because I was wrong. I owed him respect, I owed him obedience, because I am commanded by God to do so. But I knew better, I thought... And it seemed more important to make known what I thought than to trust the Lord in that moment. And I'll tell you, it doesn't really help your ability to speak gospel truth into someone's life when you make ridiculous statements like I did. It was foolish. And so instead of sinful reactions to authority, we must realize there is really one wise answer. Jesus gave it to the disciples when he sent them out to evangelize the Jews in Matthew chapter 10. He said, when they deliver you over, notice he says, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Now, this is a promise for all believers, namely, that we be guided by God, the Holy Spirit, who will lead and instruct us. The right time and the right procedure will be made plain to those who truly seek the Lord's will with a patient and trusting attitude. Now, what Solomon does point to in verse 8 is the reality that however wise and however respectful we ought to be to our authorities, they do not have unlimited power. The state is not God, no matter how much they think they are or want to be. Notice, God does reserve some power. Solomon writes, no man has the power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. In this context, it is not the Holy Spirit, but rather the spirit of man. The spirit of man is behind the control of human authority. Everyone, king and countryman alike, is at war with death. No one can keep it contained. All will lose in the end. Solomon's looked at this before. No one is able to fight the final war and win. No one apart from Christ. Now, Solomon certainly recognizes the difficulty in submitting to authority, particularly given the fact of the abuse of authority in the world. Unfortunately, abuse of authority is not the exception, it's the the rule at every level in businesses, in local governments, and especially in federal and global ruling bodies. This is even the case in institutions where there are set up elaborate checks and balances and personal freedom is the rule of law. Why? Remember what Solomon said at the end of chapter 7. God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. In other words, if something can be corrupted, rest assured, it will. Of course, that's not always the case as an absolute. And we would certainly hope, for instance, in the church of all places, that this wouldn't be the case. But all throughout the world, in the name of Jesus, there is corruption. You see it, for example... With the prosperity clowns that are pumping the poor for their money, leaving them with nothing more than empty hopes. That maybe, just maybe, one day, their so called obedience to man's corrupt theology will pay dividends in the end. Likewise, prior to the Protestant Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church was wrought with corruption as they sold indulgences and stripped the poor of their wages to offer a false hope of safety in eternity for themselves and their relatives. But this must be clear for all of us. Where outright corruption and injustice exists amongst the people of God, there is a wolf amongst the sheep that must be taken out. Unfortunately, on a, global sti- on a global scale, most of them have a following in the millions and their own cable networks to rob the poor so that they might build bigger and bigger barns for their grain. Well, we must be reminded that the wise way to live is by submitting to the sovereignty of God and entrusting our lives to Him, body and soul, to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and to be wise in understanding of who we give authority to. Jesus is the fulfillment of the wisdom of God. So to know the wise way of life is to go to Him. Jesus is the King of kings. So submitting to an earthly authority is is honoring the eternal kingship of Christ Himself. Give your life to Christ. And in doing so, your future is secure despite the troubles, despite the uncertainties of life. So Solomon's great concern here is the proper response of faith in light of corruption and injustice. The oppressed are constantly in this battle to not be taken advantage of. How ought we respond to the abuse of power and the injustice that follows? Solomon gives five instances of injustice in the following verses. First, in verse 9, he points to the, the fact that authority is often exercised to the hurt of those it is supposed to serve. Look at verse 9. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man has power over man to his hurt. Evil policies do exist. And it's painful to see men rule over other men to their own hurt. It's painful to see trust abused for those in authority who become enemies rather than protectors. But for the Christian, this is a test of our faith because it leads us often to wonder why it is that the Lord permits such things. But He does. In a fallen and broken world, this is the extent of our ability to answer the big question, why? Why? Well, God is sovereign. Sin exists. God is sovereign over the sins of mankind. And in his eternal plan, he uses it all for our good and for his glory. It's the best answer I can give you. So authority is often exercised to the herd of those that it is supposed to serve. Secondly, The wicked are praised in life and honored in death in the very cities where their wickedness was on full display. Look at verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Evil men are sometimes buried with great honor and granted a national holiday. Landmarks with their names on them and a notable spot in the history books all after a lifetime of trashing what Solomon calls the holy place. Most likely, as those in authority in a governmental role, Solomon was referring to the seat of judgment. In other words, he's speaking about those men who were given the power to make judgments, and they did so in a wicked and unjust manner. So the very place where we hope to see justice, instead we see corruption. This is a challenge to the Christian, a testing of our faith to wonder that perhaps there may be no justice in the universe at all. But remember what the Lord has said. Vengeance is mine and I will repay. The wicked judges will see their day in the court of God. Woe to them. Woe to them. Look, Number three. Justice is slow, and the deterring effects of its swiftness are thwarted by its sluggish execution. Verse 11, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. The slowness with which justice is executed is, Solomon points to, an encouragement of lawlessness in others as they are persuaded that they too might receive light punishment for crimes or maybe, just maybe, if I appeal long enough, none at all. Now the scriptures are very clearly teaching that swift justice does provide a deterrent to crime. Strike the fool... And the simple will learn wisdom. Refuse to do so, and folly will reign. I think a good example of this are those who refuse to spank their children. Folly will reign in the hearts of those who do not bring swift punishment for sin. Folly is wise enough to recognize a time of opportunity. But in Solomon's day, much like ours, swift justice was denied by those who profess to be the more enlightened. But surely we must trust that the Word of God is more reliable than swarms of sociologists. Number four, the wicked seem to enjoy the fruits of their wicked schemes through long, healthy lives and an apparent escape from any real penalty. Look at the first part of verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life. It has become nearly an expectation in our culture that high-profile crimes come with high-paying book deals and made-for-TV movie contracts, right? The wicked and godless lives of those who deal in corruption, extortion, and all kinds of evil are the very lives that much American culture thrives on. This too seems manifestly unjust. And so it seems that the wicked prosper. Number five, often we see a reversal of natural justice. Skip down to verse 14, we'll come back. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say that this is also vanity. The most shocking example of this point is the voices of all who cried out, Give us Barabbas! as the God-man Jesus Christ was handed over for death. Let the criminal walk free while crying out, Crucify him! Over the life of the only perfect man to have ever walked the earth. But on a smaller scale, every single one of us could identify this reality with our own examples. It only takes a few minutes of scanning the newspaper to come to this conclusion. Notice Solomon's not referring to these massive injustices like genocide or multi-million dollar stock exchange fraud. He's simply identifying the reality of such injustice in the lives of God's people day by day. Most cultures of oppression throughout the world aren't because of massive scale injustices, but rather it's the smaller things. And it is because these are such ever-present realities in our community or a nation that everything can seem to be so meaningless under the sun. And when we do not have a perspective of God's sovereignty, we are left to simply submit to what we all innately know is unjust. But remember, God will have his way no matter what. So Solomon has pointed the reality that there are some things that seem to be meant for the wicked that the righteous endure. And then the gifts that should come to the righteous, the wicked gain. Have you noticed any of these things? He's saying sometimes wickedness will happen 100 times before you ever notice God's involvement in it. But be careful how you see the world. Here's the wisdom. You're going to see someone at work. You're going to see someone at, at, uh, at play, at home. You're going to see someone do something unrighteous. And do you know what's going to happen to them? Nothing. In fact, they might gain from it. They're going to get some money. They're going to gain more friends because friends like money. They're going to do something else that the scriptures call wicked. And they're going to get money. They're going to get new cars. They're going to get a bigger house. Whatever it is. They're going to do something wicked and they're going to continually do wickedness. And as they do, you'll only see what appears to be good things happening to them. Likewise, you will see a righteous man do what is right before God and maybe he goes broke. Like, I, know, I know it's not a popular thing to say, um, but people write books and they share things on TBN. The popular story is, I only had $20 in my bank account. But I had to give that to the church, so I wrote a check for $20. I gave everything I had and then two weeks later, On the day that they were going to turn off my power, I received a check for $150. I gave $20 to the church, and I got back $150. That was the full amount of the power bill plus the $20 I gave. Now, you never hear those stories and someone say, I wrote a check for twenty dollars. I owed one hundred and fifty dollars on my power bill, and two weeks later, it was dark around my house, and it still is. (laughs) Listen, we may do things in obedience with a desire to please God, but we never—we might never see a return that we expect. See, no one ever wants to get that honest. But Solomon's saying be careful how you see the world. Learn to see it eternally and not in the temporary. Because in the end, God will judge. So don't be deceived. Don't buy into the idea that wickedness doesn't cost anything. It does. But don't buy into the idea either that simply because you strive for righteousness in this life that you will see a return in this life. We're not looking for returns in this life. We're looking for the great return that is yet to come. This is what makes health, wealth, and prosperity preaching so incredibly foolish. It is wicked and it distorts the teaching of scriptures. So what is our proper response to finish up? How shall we look at such injustice all around us with the eyes of faith and trust in the sovereignty of God? The end part of verse 12, he says, I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. Go down to verse 15. And I commend joy for man, has no good thing under the sun, but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. So remember the judgment of God and the destiny of the wicked, and the grace of God and the destiny of the righteous. In other words, get your mind out of here and now and look to the eternal, to what is to come. In Psalm 73, the psalmist affirms that the prosperity of the wicked is an illusion. Ultimately, things will not go well for them. And God, who is just and good, wants His people to enjoy the goodness of what He does give in this life. We've seen this before in Ecclesiastes, right? Eat, drink, and be joyful. God is good to have given us wonderful mercies and great gifts to enjoy, and we ought to be filled with joy in Christ. Our lives should be marked by joy in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trials, in the midst of oppression. Not simply smiling ourselves through the day, that's not joy but contentment and satisfaction in Jesus regardless of our circumstances. Verse 16, When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So, enjoying the good things of this life that God has graciously given to us does not cancel the painful anomalies and iniquities so obvious to the global condition of man. God's people understand that His blessing and His grace is attention with their yet unfulfilled desire for the completion of his work of redemption and the full establishment of the kingdom of Christ. God is Lord. We must recognize his sovereignty over all things if we are to understand anything. Solomon sets himself to know the business that was done on the earth, and this is the task that he set himself to that resulted in sleepless nights. But a man cannot know. He sees all the work of God. He sees that man cannot know what God is doing. And this is wisdom discovered by a very wise man named Solomon. The wise know how to identify what cannot be known. Solomon's referring to his governance of our lives here and now. He sets limitations upon every man. Now, look around as you please. Ultimately, you do not know what is happening in every circumstance. So as we consider what passes before us, we cannot make sense of a lot of it. We tend to assume, echoing Shakespeare, that the history of all things is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Rather, we should see it as a tale told to idiots, and it makes the wicked to appear as foolish as they truly are. The greatest glimpse that we have of the sovereignty of God over all things, working to the benefit of those who know and trust him, is the sovereignty he exercised over the condemnation and crucifixion of his own dear son, Jesus Christ. Surely, the disciples did not know what was to come of that situation. All they saw was unjust, wicked men who sought to kill their friend and their teacher and their Lord. But soon it would be clear. The evil deeds of men, the unjust schemes of the wicked, seemed successful for a day. Indeed, they seemed successful. For several days. But in the end, they were defeated by the power of the resurrection. Do not be deceived. The way of the unjust and evil is the way of death. Run to Christ. Rest in His promises of a better day that we would enjoy. And that now we would enjoy what He gives to us as a foretaste of His great design. Eat, drink, and be joyful. Rest in Jesus, our only assurance of justice, of peace, and of ultimate lasting joy. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you. Thank you that our hope need not be placed in kings and princes and rulers and presidents and congresses. Governors. Lord, no law on this earth will serve to transform the hearts of men. To have a desire to love and serve and walk righteously before you. It is only by the power and work of Jesus Christ. And so God, I pray. I pray that you help us to rightly submit to authority. To honor those whom you have put over us, whether they love and serve you or not. So long as we are not called to sin, that we would see that it is our responsibility to submit. And in doing so, we are submitting to you. Lord, I, I pray that you help us to be a people of courage. That when... We are called to sin that we would be like many in the scriptures and say, we bow our knee to no other. We only bow our knee to Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Lord, I pray that you help us to not grow weary to not be impatient when we see injustice and suffering and evil. Give us a desire to alleviate these things, because you've called us to that. But help us to not be hasty. And help us, O Lord, to trust in your sovereign goodness, and to know that while we see with a very narrow lens that you know the beginning from the end, and that you are working all things together, that you would be glorified, that your people would be rescued, and that we would dwell in the new heavens and the new earth in perfect unity, the greatest of joy, the absence of injustice, the absence of sin, the absence of suffering, and the full fulfillment of the promises that you have given to us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your instruction. And thank you for the power of Christ within us to be obedient to all that you have commanded. In Jesus' name, amen.